worship the Lord tonight. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. You'll remain standing for just a moment. Thank you, Brother Jones. And uh, it's good to be with you, your good wife, Sister Jones. If anybody can play music and sing and lead the choir any better, I don't know who it is. I can't, I can't remember. My, what a great choir. We ought to give this choir a big hand. Praise God. Great choir, great singing. I've enjoyed the singing here, the praise singing, the music, the worship, the fellowship. It's been very good. It's great to be with Bishop Johnson, my longtime friend. I appreciate him a lot. Had the privilege of preaching here several years ago and had the privilege of preaching in your winter heritage meeting a few years back. So I've, I've really enjoyed those meetings. Brother Johnson, Bishop Johnson, is a special person love and appreciate him so much. Great man of God. Amen. Thank the Lord. Now I appreciate Pastor Burgess. Man, what a great man. What a great man of God. Amen. I appreciate this good pastor. Good work he's doing for God here. What a great man of God he is. Good to be here with these speakers. Brother Jackson last night. Man. That was fantastic. This morning, Brother Picklesheimer, well, we heard from an elder and it was good. Brother Picklesheimer, that was good. Amen. And uh, then, then we heard from Brother Von Morton. And nobody in the world could emulate Brother Von Morton. He's one of a kind and he blesses me every time I hear him preach. Amen. Had the opportunity to preach in PSR meetings way back in the 80s and 90s. And a uh, great man of God. I've enjoyed fellowship through the years. Brother Morton preached in our church area several times. We've enjoyed that so much. Brother Moody, it's great to be with you. God bless you. Appreciate you and your ministry so much. God bless you. And um, we have a couple of... A couple of um, Folks here from North Carolina tonight. Brother and Sister Han. Where's Brother Han? There he is over here. Brother and Sister Han. I saw him up here in that choir. He's a good evangelist and he works out of Durham. And I appreciate Brother and Sister Han a whole lot. God bless him. And Brother Lincoln Holker. Where's he? There he is up here. Pastor in Cherokee, North Carolina. Way up in the mountains. And it's great to see him tonight. And then I'm very delighted to have my youngest daughter and her husband, Brother and Sister Robbie Mitchell here. And their daughters, Madison. Madison was in Durham last week, and she just turned 20 last week. And Megan is about to turn 18. And Marley is 10. Don't raise your hand in case these folks don't know you, brother. And sister. This is my youngest daughter and her husband. I love them. And my grandchildren, three grandchildren. I appreciate them being here. They pastor in the Denver metro area. Been there over three years. Starting a new church, just started the second work. So I appreciate and love them so much. And I'm glad they're here. They blessed me by coming. Amen. Praise God. I have <coughs> I have uh, I have two daughters and have five grandchildren. 
And all of them are boys except four. And, uh, and I love my grandchildren, my children, and my sweetheart, my wife, 52 years. She's not well. She'd like to be here. Talked to her on the phone today. She's not doing well, but she's been my sweetheart for 52 years. And I love her very much. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation to come. And if you turn to Exodus chapter 4, now I wonder when Bishop Johnson invited me to come to a youth meeting, preaching a youth meeting of all things. And I thought, man, I'm telling you, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about this business. And, and, <laughs> and then I found out that all of these speakers were going to be over 70. And I said, well, praise God, I can fit in that body. <laughs> Brother Jackson's the youngest speaker of, of the five of us that's speaking, so he's the he's the young one in the crowd. <laughs> what a great message last night! I believe every word of it. Great, amen. And I got thinking about older folk. You know, Ronald Reagan was sixty nine years old the first time he was elected president. Seventy three the second time he was elected president. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. And uh, Colonel Sanders was 67 when he started his first Kentucky Fried Chicken job. He was 67. And uh, Brother Morton talking about his mama's cooking today, and boy, he described it. I think if Colonel Sanders could have made chicken like Brother Morton's mother, he'd have been General Sanders, not Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Amen. And then I, I read about a man... A few years ago, back in the 80s and early 90s, his name was Hikawa. He was senator from Hawaii. And um, he was 77 years old first when he ran for senator, U.S. senator, six-year term. So they kept asking the question. He kept hearing it over and over. They said, Mr. Hikawa, you're 77 years old. They tried to make a big issue out of that. Your opponent's 40-something. You're 77. What are you going to do? And he said, um, they said, how do you feel about it? He said, well, I feel pretty good about it. He said, I talked to my daddy about it. He thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and then he said, I discussed it with my grandpa. And uh, he thought it'd be all right. And he won going away. <laughs> so I feel pretty comfortable on this platform tonight. Amen. I thought about the man that was in a college class. And the teacher got up first day of First day of uh, college class, he got up without an introduction, without a word. This is the way some people think. He said, uh, he said, uh, I, uh, he said, Elizabeth was the queen of England, and Hirohito was the emperor of Japan, and Reagan the president of the United States. He said, how old am I? Well, that don't tell you much. He said it again, said, uh, said uh, Elizabeth is Queen of England, Hirohita is Emperor of Japan, Reagan's President of the United States. How old? I'm an old boy, country boy, back in the back. He said, you're 44. He said, that's right. How did you mathematically figure that out? Give us the equation. Come up here. The guy came up on the platform. He said, tell us how you figured my age out. He said, well, I got a brother that's in a mental institution, and he's 22. And I figured you was twice crazy as he was. So, 
I guess that's one way of figuring things out. Let's read from the Word tonight. Amen. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord has not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said to Moses, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. Tonight, for the sake of a subject, I want to use this thought, the rod of God. The rod of God. Bishop, why don't you come up here and pray for us? Would you do that? Let's bow our heads for prayer. God, we thank you for your word that has just been read in our hearing. We know from this you have inspired this man. Put Holy Ghost anointing upon him. We have come to hear from you, Lord. And now we believe, God, you have put the word in his mouth to speak to us. God, we open our ears to you. We open our hearts. And God, we are now ready to receive your word. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. And God bless you tonight. Amen. I read the story of a uh, certain man who was relating how he had uh, visited a swimming pool. He wasn't swimming himself, the story goes, but he was simply sitting on, on the edge of the, of the area watching the antics of all the various swimmers that were seeming to, seemingly enjoying themselves. And, and out of this number, he saw a tall tall, strapping individual go toward the edge of the pool, and he thought to himself, uh, I'm going to see something now really worth seeing. This guy's going to the edge of the pool. But to his surprise, that big, tall guy went to the edge of the water and put his toe in it as though he was um, going to find out whether it was hot or cold. Then he walked to the deep end, and the story went that he climbed on one board to the next, and then finally to the topmost board. And he poised himself, and he dived very magnificently as divers, only good divers could do, disappearing before the water, and, and uh, hardly a splash. The man said he struck out strongly the other side and climbed the edge. So the man, the man said he was overcome with curiosity. And he said, um, went up to the man, he said, I... I hope you don't consider me to be unduly inquisitive. But I've been fascinated watching you dip your toe in the water and then dive so beautifully. He said, would you explain to me how it is that you began like such a novice, but you ended up like an expert? Would you explain that to me? The man said, well, let me tell you. To be frank, he said, uh, I guess that's a little bit childish, but I'm a teacher, and I used to teach in a country school, and they had a swimming pool there. And he said, one hot summer day, evening, at night, he said, I thought before turning in that night I would go and take a, a plunge in that uh, half-moonlit night. So he said, I went to the pool, and I climbed until I was on the top board, and I stood there, and I raised my arm. And I poised, ready to dive. But he said, as I did that in the half darkness, 
The moon was shining through the trees, and it cast a shadow on the face of the pool. And he said, when I was standing there with my arms out, I looked down, and it was the shadow of a cross. He said, I can't explain it. When I saw that shadow of the cross on the pool, he said, my hands dropped to the side, and I decided not to dive. And he said, of course, as my hands came back up, ready to dive again, I could again see the cross appear, the shadow of a cross in that pool, and then when I put my arms down, it would disappear. So he said, I, I thought, well, I, I, I don't want to be overly superstitious, but something made it impossible that night for me to dive. And he said, climbing down from that diving board, I went to the edge of the pool and I looked in. And, and, and when I looked in that pool in the, in, the, in the dimness of that night, he said, I discovered that unknown to me, the pool had been drained that day for cleaning. And he said, if I had dived, then if I had dived like I planned to head first from that top board, I would have been killed immediately. He said, so you probably think it's kind of stupid of me, but I made a rule that night with myself, no matter how obvious the water may seem, before I dive, I'm going to test the water and see if it's real. And he said, sir, I can't explain it, but that night I was saved by a cross. And to say it was the cross that saved me isn't the whole story. Because when you read the word of God, the Bible talks about Jesus Christ. We're here. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. And by him and him alone are we saved. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none of the name of the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank God for a name that's above every name. We, we wear that name with honor. We are Jesus' name people. We are apostolic people. We are one God people, and we're very glad about that. We're not apologetic about that, but we're very thankful for that marvelous truth. But, you know, just to say I was saved by the cross, the cross of Jesus was never designed simply and only to be in God's hands, the only means whereby our sins are forgiven. It was the means that our sins were forgiven for sure. But he died on that cross for you and me, that we, you and me, might become the recipients of his resurrected life. Amen. In other words, he died for what I have done to make me fit for heaven. And he arose again from the dead. To take the place of what I am and make me fit for earth. I said he died to make us fit for heaven. And then through his life we are fit for this earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 talks about the gospel. Paul says it's the death. It's the burial. It's the resurrection. It's Acts 2.38 if you please. It's repentance from sin. It's water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's him filling the Holy Ghost with a sign of speaking with tongues as the Spirit of God gave the utterance. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And what he is made me fit for earth on my way to heaven. I said what he is 
made us fit on this earth to go to heaven. I was reading today in Romans 5 verse 10. Paul said, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Notice, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Thank God for the blood. Let's sing about it. Let's preach about it. Let's talk about it. But just because Jesus gave his blood on the cross doesn't mean you and I are automatically saved. Thank God for his death. Thank God for his burial. Thank God for his resurrection. Hallelujah. So Paul said we shall be saved by his life. I think it's very important when you read the scripture to note that you are saved by the life of Jesus Christ, not simply and only by his death. Hallelujah. So in reading Romans 5 and 10, and from the whole testimony that's given to us in the word of God from the beginning to the end, I think it's the life of Jesus Christ that saves us, not his death only. I'm not negating Calvary. We, there had to be Calvary. There had to be blood. There had to be the sacrifice. There had to be the offering. But I'm going to tell you, we're not saved only by that, but we are saved through his life. Amen. His death reconciles you. His death establishes peace between us when we were guilty sinners and a holy God. By his death, we're reconciled to God. But when we are, then it qualifies you to become the recipient of his resurrected life. The perfect sinless life that Jesus lived qualified him for the death that he died. If he had not been perfect and spotless and sinless, then his death would have meant nothing. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. It was a redeeming, reconciling death. But the redeeming, reconciling death of Jesus qualifies you to receive his life. His life qualified him for his death, but his death qualifies you for his life. Everybody still with me tonight? It's wonderful to know that Jesus Christ, not only in his sinlessness, died for our sinfulness, that we might have peace with God, but being crucified for our redemption, he rose again the third day that the mighty power of the Holy Ghost might come and occupy our humanity. I said the Holy Ghost has come to live in us. Paul said, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thank God for the power of God that's in us. Thank God for Pentecost. Thank God for the anointing and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. So you see, when he comes, and you may be saying, when he comes and occupies our humanity, then our hands become his hands. Our lips become his lips. 
Our mind becomes his mind. Our eyes become his eyes. And our heart becomes his heart. So that Jesus Christ can live in us, can walk in us, can work in us, and talk within us. Hallelujah. On this earth, not just when we get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, we're singing shout to victory. But we're not in heaven yet. We're still on this earth. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Hallelujah. Anybody glad for the Holy Ghost tonight? Through His death, His burial, and His resurrection, we die to sin. We're baptized in His name and our sin permitted. We get the Holy Ghost speaking with tongues. Thus we are born again of water and spirit. Let's clap our hands to the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament gives us a lot of, uh, of these wonderful pictures that we look at in the New Testament. And I want to look in, for a moment in Exodus chapter 17 concerning the children of Israel. The Bible said at the outset of their journey through the wilderness, they were on their way toward Canaan. And I don't really need to tell you tonight, you already know that Egypt is a picture of the unredeemed. Egypt is a picture of the unconverted. Egypt is a picture of any person without God. Egypt is a picture of people lost without God. Egypt is a picture of people in bondage. Egypt shows people lost in trespasses and sins. Egypt shows people that are cut off from the life of God, who spiritually are, are, are totally bankrupt and destitute. Israel, uh, our Egypt as we see it in the Bible, is a place of slavery. That's where you used to be. That's where I used to be. Young people, that's where you were. Hallelujah. Paul said, and such were some of you, but now you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me move on pretty quickly. Canaan, as I view it in the Scripture, uh, Nowhere in the scripture does Canaan represent heaven. Only in our songbooks. That's right. Canaan does not represent heaven. We can say we're living in Canaan's land, but we've been filled with the Holy Ghost and we're on our way to heaven. But Canaan represents the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. It represents the victorious Christian who is filled with the Holy Ghost. Deuteronomy 12 and 1 said, The land which the Lord thy God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it. All the days, notice, God said, I'm going to give it to you to possess it. All the days of your life. All the days of your life upon the earth. God said, I'm going to give you the land to possess it. So Canaan represents the... the uh, Victory that we have through Jesus. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 3 said that children of Israel should have been possessors right then, but they were not, for they grieved God for 40 years. What should have been an 11-day journey to, the, to Canaan took 40 years. And they wondered and stumbled in the wilderness. Hallelujah. God wants to bring every one of us out of Egypt and out of the wilderness unto a land of victory and deliverance in His name. 
You know, you know when you when you look at the scripture, about halfway between Egypt and between Canaan, there was a wilderness. You've got Egypt, you've got Canaan, but there was a wilderness. Shows the picture that wilderness of people that are defeated. They're not really walking as they should. So they're in the wilderness. And they never entered that land. You see, if you and I are barren and unfruitful, uh, then God's not happy with us. We may be busy in the work of God, but it's got to be more than busy. And we ought to be busy. We ought to be laborers for God. We ought to be workers together. We ought to be laborers in the kingdom. Young people need to help spear the head the way for an apostolic revival in the end time. Hallelujah. I said young people ought to be knocking on doors. Young people ought to be winning souls. Young people ought to be teaching Bible studies. Young people ought to be winning folks to God. But you know, a lot of people make up for their barrenness with their busyness. They are busy. A lot of people are busy in the church, but they're barren and unfruitful. Exodus 17 and 6, God said to Moses, Thou shalt smite the rock at Horeb. So at the beginning of their journey, which corresponds to us with redemption, Moses at God's command, the Bible said he smote the rock. And the apostle Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 10 to us that that rock being smitten by Moses was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He says, and that rock which followed them was Christ. That rock that followed them was Christ. But that was at the very outlet. That was at the very threshold of their journey. And no sooner, we read in the scripture, had the rock been smitten, that the water flowed from that smitten rock that we see in Exodus 17 and 8. Then immediately there came Amalek, the next verse, and said, fought against them. I'm going to tell you, just because you've been delivered doesn't mean the devil's not going to come and fight against you. The devil's going to fight you in your family. He's going to fight you in school. He's going to fight you on your job. He's going to fight you everywhere we go. The devil is cunning and crafty and deceitful, but he's a liar and the father of it. I'm going to tell you, if you've got your mind made up, the devil can't stop you. Amen. I don't have a lot of time to go into Amalek, but uh, let me be just kind of brief in saying that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And Esau was the one that sold his birthright. And so he's identified with Esau in that hatred and that defiant and arrogant, conceited attitude of self-sufficiency. People throw out their chest in our generation and say, I don't need God. I've got a job, a career, I've got money, I've got this and that. What do I need with God? They defy God to his face. That's Esau. He despised his birthright. I said Esau despised his birthright. And Amalek was identified with that arrogant attitude of independence. When you've repented of your sins, you've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You've been cleansed by the power of the blood, filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. You're going to still discover that that old Adam nature is still around. 
I said, even though you got the Holy Ghost, you're still in the flesh. You're still human. You're still subject to temptation. Bible said, yield not to temptation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That old nature is still around. And if this principle within you, I believe, the principle of self-sufficiency, the principle of the flesh that will rob us of our usefulness for the kingdom of God on this earth. Hallelujah. Amalek wants to hold, wants you to hold on to your money, your time, your talents, your ambitions. There's young people here tonight that need to give your money to God, your time to God, your talent to God, your ambitions to God, your ability to God. If you're not careful, Jesus Christ gets nothing or he gets very little while we pamper this flesh. Hallelujah. We got to realize this is our temporary dwelling place. But we're on our way. We're on a journey. We're seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. In Exodus 17, 9 through 11, Moses said to Joshua, said, choose us out men and go out and fight against Amalek. He said, tomorrow I'm going to stand at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. You'll notice that rod was spoken of pretty often. It was more than just something in his hand. It represented something powerful. I'm going to tell you, young people, when you get the Holy Ghost, you've got something very powerful. And so Joshua did as Moses had said. The Bible said he fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And the Bible said it came to pass that when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Long as his hands were raised up, Israel would prevail. Amen. I think that's a very interesting thing. That Moses told Joshua to go and fight with Amalek. But the point is, this battle didn't have anything to do with Joshua. Hallelujah. It had everything to do with God. No matter how weak Joshua felt, no matter how much his knees trembled, no matter how he counted the enemy hosts and, and found he was outnumbered ten to one or more, no matter how inadequate he felt within himself, he went out to fight. And as long as Moses held up his hand, Joshua won. When Moses' hands were up, Joshua won. Hallelujah. I think this is trying to teach us tonight that the victory is not vested in Joshua. The victory is not in ourselves. The victory is not in our flesh. It's not in our enthusiasm, but thank God for it. It's not in our bravery. It's not in our sacrifice. It's not in our skill. But the victory is in God alone. Hallelujah. It was a God-given victory that represented by the rod of God that was in Moses' hand. The Bible said Moses' hand held high with the rod in it. That was a picture that God has gives us of a God-sent and a God-given victory. There is a victory. There's a place that God wants you to live in victory. It's not God's will for us to live a life of defeat, despondency, and discouragement. It's God's will for you to rise above it. Take the spirit you feel in this youth convention. Take it home. Take it to your church. Take it to Sunday morning. Take it to Sunday night. Take it to midweek service. 
And so the Bible said that Moses and Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill. They went up to the top of the hill. And uh, when he held up Moses' hands, the victory came. And when his hands were down, the victory was gone. The moment I believe that Moses stopped appropriating that God-given victory, no matter how hard, no matter how enthusiastic, no matter what skill or bravely that Joshua fought against Amalek with, he was beaten hands down every time. Every time your hands down. Hallelujah. I believe in going to church and lifting your hand. Paul said, let me, let me, let me, di- let me digress here a little. Paul said uh, that uh, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Some people say, why do you absolutely people lift your hands? The Bible said, David said, let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice to thee, O God, my strength and my redeemer. Why do we clap our hands in church? He said, clap your hands, all your people. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. (laughs) Hallelujah. We're not crazy. We're not out of our mind. When we lift our hands, when we clap our hands, when we sing and shout and dance and run the aisles and talk in tongues, we're not a bunch of crazy people. We know what we're doing. Let me ask you as you're seated tonight, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen the folly of trying to fight a battle already lost? But instead of that, we as God's people sometimes fail to enjoy the victory that he's already won. I said the victory's already won. Hallelujah. And I wonder if there aren't young people here tonight that have been sincerely fighting a battle already lost in your flesh because you've never discovered that the Christian life is the power of God in you and that in Him only can victory come. That's why your pastor teaches you to fast and pray and live for God and worship God. Let me ask you the question, where did Moses' rod come from? Where did he get that rod? Amen. It'd be a good idea to have a rod like that, wouldn't it? It was a rod that he smote the Red Sea with. This was the rod from which he smote the rock, and the waters of life flowed from it and saved them from dying of thirst. This is the rod which he turned rivers into blood and filled the ditches with frogs and filled the heavens with hail. That was the rod of God. Hallelujah. That was the rod of God. And God told him to take that rod and with it he would do wonders. So when you turn to Exodus 4 in my text tonight and discover where Moses got that rod from, I've got good news for you tonight. Really good news. God's got a rod like that for you. Every one of us, every young person in this youth convention can have the rod of God in your life tonight. Which represents the power and the glory and the authority and the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Somebody worship God with me. Brother Morton said today he wasn't drinking water because he's thirsty. He said he's drinking water to build up steam. Well, I drink water because I'm thirsty. And... uh, and I may be the first windmill you've ever seen operated by water. Praise God. But anyhow, God has called Moses to be a human, the human agency 
of his redemptive purposes in bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt. But in spite of some of the wonderful demonstration that God gave to Moses, Moses still remained doubtful. We've seen the power of God. We've seen his miracles. We've seen his and experienced his healing. How many of this building's ever been healed by the power of God? Raise your hand. Then you know what God can do. You don't have to have anybody tell you. Don't let doubt fill your life. Don't let unbelief fill your life. Amen. It'll be two years next month that I had some heart problem. And I went to the doctor. They put me in the hospital. They went up to the growing end of my heart. And uh, the doctor said it'd take us about three hours of work inside of your heart. But when he came out, my wife said that he was, he was perspiring heavily and it took him six hours instead of three. Amen. And he was in my heart. And I thought the only ones that ever been in my heart were Jesus and my wife. But that doctor got in my heart too. And uh, he came out and he said it wasn't real good. But you know what? Uh, then in a, in a few days, I started feeling stronger. I felt like God had healed me. Two months later, in October of 2013, in October, I went to Canada uh, to preach a meeting for Brother McKillop and uh, went up there into, into Presque Isle, Maine, and, and uh, they picked me up and took me over to, uh, to Brother McKillop's church. And uh, I was there and preached on Thursday night of their anniversary conference, on Thursday night. And on Friday night, Brother Wade Bass preached. And then on Saturday morning, I preached again. I was supposed to fly out Saturday afternoon. The only problem with that, I have no memory of Friday night. I have zero memory of Saturday. I have zero memory of preaching Saturday morning. They gave me the CD, but I haven't had the courage to listen to it yet. Brother McKillop sent it to me, but I haven't listened to it. I'm, I'm afraid to. They said I even went over and got a guitar, Brother Johnson, and picked it and sang a song. And man, I'm not a guitar picker. Here's the master right here. Here's the best. Amen. Hallelujah. But uh, I preached Saturday morning. I have no memory of it. And the man picked me up and took me to Presque Isle an hour or two, two hours away. I have no memory. I don't remember who it was. And he put me on the plane and I went to... Boston, I changed planes, but I have zero memory. This is what I'm told. I flew into Raleigh-Durham. My wife and daughter, uh, Lisa's sister, uh, Sister Betts, met us. They met me at the airport. And uh, Cindy, my oldest daughter, said, Daddy, they told me later, Daddy acts real strange. I don't know what's the matter with him. And uh, they said, you want us to take you to the doctor? I said, no, I'm fine. They took me home, got out of the car and fell in the driveway and started vomiting. They said, we're going to take you to the hospital. That was Saturday night, about 8 o'clock. I'd have no memory from Friday until Sunday night at midnight. Amen. At midnight, they said I had a blood clot on the brain and it was going to kill me if something wasn't done. So they drilled a couple of holes in, the, in my head. I can still feel where the, where the holes, where they drilled the holes in my head. The doctor said the blood shot out all over his coat from where I had the blood clot. Make a long story short. I was out of the hospital. Folks were fasting and praying. I was out of the hospital in two days, went back 30 days later. The doctor showed me and gave me the x-rays. I have them in my office now. I've got the x-rays before uh, when I had the blood clot. I, ha I got the x-rays after. The blood clot shows that all of that blood had pushed my brain to one side of my head. Now then it's in back in perfect alignment. 
The doctor looked at me 30 days later and he said, Reverend, you know you shouldn't be here. You know you shouldn't be alive. And I said, you're right, sir. I said, but I had a good doctor and I had a great God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe you see it. So they tell me now my heart's all right. They say my brain's all right. So if I act crazy, I can't blame it on that blood clot. I don't have anything to blame it on. Praise God. But God heal me. I said, God heal me. Thank God for his healing power. That's a part of the, of the work of the Holy Ghost in the church. God's a healer of all manner of sickness, disease, and infirmity. There's nothing too hard from God. For God. While I'm preaching tonight, somebody can be healed. Right now, somebody can be healed. Somebody say, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. So God called Moses to be the human agency of his redemptive purpose in bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt. But in spite of all of these demonstrations that God had given to Moses, Moses was still doubtful. And he said in my text tonight, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken to my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared in thee. And Moses said, How can I convince them that you have really sent me? How am I going to know that you're on my side? How can I persuade these people that this is really true? And the Lord said to Moses in response to his question, what is that in thine hand? What have you got in your hand? And I believe that Moses was sort of shocked and surprised, maybe startled. He'd almost maybe forgotten what he had in his hand. It had been there so long, and sometimes we've had the Holy Ghost so long that we have a tendency to forget where God brought us from. He brought us out of a horrible pit. He placed our feet on a solid rock. He established our steps. I don't want to forget what God did for me. Hallelujah. In 1956, as a, as a 16-year-old, almost 16-year-old teenager, I went to an altar. I prayed and repented was baptized. And God filled me with the Holy Ghost. Here we are in 2015. I don't want to forget what God has done. I don't want to forget what God has given. Hey. This don't need to become old hat and old business. Thank God for the Holy Ghost and fire. You see, maybe you see, Moses had been a servant for, of God and a shepherd for 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. And he looked at that rod probably as just a piece of wood. Probably a shepherd's staff, a rod. And so he answered when God said, what have you got in your hand? He said, a rod, just a harmless piece of wood. And God said, cast it to the ground. God's going to try you at times to see if you'll obey his voice. God's going to try you to see if you'll do what he said. God said, you got a rod, cast it to the ground. Now, I can almost hear Moses tonight arguing with God and say, you want me to cast that to the ground? It's only a piece of wood. But God said, throw it down. God said, get rid of it. God said, open your hand quickly. God said, drop it. What have you got in your hand? I've got a rod. 
And God said, throw it down. And when he dropped it, you know what? It became a serpent. That rod, that piece of wood became a serpent. And Moses began to flee from it. And uh, look, God, that's a snake. Amen. We're not a snake handling church. I was preaching in West Virginia a while back. Pastor told me about 15 miles up in the ravine there, their place, there's a snake handling church. He said, you want to go? And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm quite satisfied not to go to a snake handling church. Praise God. Anybody say amen right there? And God said, drop it. And he said, look, it's a snake. And God said, I knew it was. That's why I said, drop it. But you see, you didn't know, Moses. You've had it so long and it's been so harmless. You didn't know, God said, but I know. Stop running away from it. Turn right around and look it straight in the eye and put forth your hand and take it by the tail. You've ever been around snakes and I've been around a few little harmless ones. But if you take them by the tail, they're going to swing around faster than you can think and they're going to bite you. But God said, take it by the tail. Now, if I was asking you, if God said for you to take a snake up, which end would you go for? I wouldn't go for the tail. I'd just try to get it maybe behind the head, around the neck, and I'd hold on, and I'd keep shouting and screaming as loud as I could till somebody came and helped me get rid of that thing. If I had a snake in my hand, I'd be trying to get rid of it. But God said, no, don't take it by the head. You take it by the tail. Because you see, God knew that he would take care of the other end. God said, you take by the tail, I'm going to take care of the head. Genesis 3 and 1 said, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. You see, God said to that old snake, the serpent, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, Because you've done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above all the beasts of the field. Upon thy belly shall thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman was the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, God in Christ. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a preacher, a priest, or a rabbi, or just another man. He was the mighty God manifest in flesh. Aren't you glad you know that revelation tonight? He's more than a man. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 of my soul. I'm talking about Jesus tonight. At the death of Jesus on that cross, that old snake bruised his heel. But through his death, Jesus Christ destroyed him that had power over death, even the devil. 
devil wants you to think he's so great, but he's not. He wants you to think he's so wonderful, but he's not. He wants you to think the sinful life is the best life, but it's not. He makes sin look appealing, but it's really not. He makes sin look appetizing, but it's really not. Hallelujah. 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 The way of drug addiction is not an easy life. The way of the alcoholic is not an easy life. The way of immorality is not an easy life. God will deliver from drugs and alcohol and fornication and adultery. God will deliver from homosexuality. You say, I don't believe God could save that. I believe God can save anybody. If they'll come, if they repent, if they get right, if their life is changed, God can change anybody. The headlines, you may be seeing, headlines of USA Today, the headline, front page said that America now is accepting gay marriage and Obamacare. And I got to reading, that's the headlines, front page. I got to reading on back in some of the other pages. And it said the number of people that, that endorse and believe in Obamacare is 8%. But America's endorsement. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying what it is. All I'm saying is that the, the, the news people put it out there as though it's facts. 8% believe it's a good plan. 48% are scared about it. 40% are very uncertain about it. 8% said they think it's good. In the gay marriage thing, the headline said America's accepting. And they want you to go on and don't any politician raise the issue. It said in the paper it's already settled. That's a settled issue. But I got to reading and it said 50-something percent of people say they don't think it's a right idea. But the headline says America accepts that. The headline says it's okay. I'm going to tell you, friend, I'm not going to believe what the news people say. I'm not going to believe what the media says. I'm going to believe what this book says. God made them male and female. Hallelujah. Three to four percent of America is gay, but the papers want you to think it's everywhere and everybody. But I'm going to tell you, in the midst of all of this, God's still got a church. You may be seated. This past Sunday night, a lady came to our altar. She came with her lesbian friend this past Sunday night before the service was over one of them was in the altar and God had filled her with the Holy Ghost speaking with tongues I stood there plainly on the platform she was speaking in tongues as the spirit gave the other you say what's she going to do I don't know what she's going to do I don't know what the ex drunk's going to do but I can tell you that God will deliver that God will save that God will set free that there's nothing too hard for God. Hallelujah. 
So it's the death of Jesus on the cross. That old snake bruised his heel. But through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan, Jesus destroyed him that had power over death, even the devil. Jesus bruised his head. You take that serpent by the tail. I'll take care of the head. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm saying it's a victory already won. Amen. And why don't some of you look that devil straight in the face and take it by the tail and say, I'm going to take you by the tail because God has already taken care of the head. The head's already been bruised. Jesus took care of that. Jesus paid it all. Got my all to him I owe. Somebody clap your hands with me and praise him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Moses put forth his hand. The Bible said he caught it. What do you think happened? When he caught that snake and got it by the tail, it became a rod in his hand. Harmless in his hand now. But God said to Moses first, you've got to drop it. You've got you to drop that rod. Amen. The reason you need to drop that rod, because it's got a snake in it. And when you take it up again, everything will be all right. Hallelujah. So God gave it back to him after he took the snake out of it. Hallelujah. I feel the presence of God here tonight. God said in Exodus 4 and 17, He said, Thou take the rod in your hand, and whatsoever thou shalt do it, you will do signs. In verse 20, the Bible said that Moses took uh, that Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass and they returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. I'm preaching tonight about the rod of God. It's the rod of God, not the mo- rod of Moses. It's the rod of God. That was a symbol of a God-given victory. It was the symbol representing the very God-given fact that God in Christ, Jesus Christ, the mighty God, has already defeated the enemy and death and hell, and he's defeated the devil himself. And so God saved you from fighting a battle that's already lost when he invited you to join him in a victory that's already won. What have you got in your hand? Maybe it's been there so long you've forgotten what it was. God said drop it. You may be tempted to argue with God and say, God, why should I drop it? There's nothing wrong with this. But God says drop it. What have you got in your hand? Sports is playing a big role in America tonight. Sports has become a major god of this, of this generation. Hallelujah. Organized sports is playing a big role. Boys and young men that can throw a ball or catch it or hit it, whatever, are making astronomical amounts of money. 
5, 10, 15, 20, 25, $30 million a year. Who ever heard of that? Signed a contract for four or five years for a hundred and something million dollars just because you can play sports. Sports has become a god in America. Let me tell you my stand. When I was almost 16, I was playing on the high school uh, basketball team and the baseball team. When God baptized me with the Holy Ghost on a Tuesday night, we had one game to go. I was on the high school basketball team. We had one game to go for the rest of the, uh, for the state championship. I went in the next morning and I turned in my shorts and my uniform. And I said, Coach Armit, I'm not going to be on the team anymore. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going to be on the team. He said, you can't do that. I said, I just did it. He said, you mean you're quitting the team? And I said, yeah. And he said, you can't quit the team. I said, sir, I'm quitting the team. He said, why are you quitting the team? I said, I went to church last night, and God filled me with the Holy Ghost, and I'm quitting the team. Hallelujah. I don't know if they'd have won, if I, you may be seated, if, I, if I'd have been on there. But they went and played two or three days later, and they lost the championship game. And so in front of hundreds of high school students, maybe four or five hundred, not a large school, but in front of all the freshmen and, and, and sophomores and juniors and seniors, the coach got up and the principal of the school, and he called my name, and I was sitting out there. And he called my name, and he said, we might be the state champions today if it wasn't for Johnny there. He's a loser. And I was sitting there. He pointed me out, Brother Morton, among all these students. I just sat there. My face probably got red. He said, he's a loser. But you know what? Five years later, I was evangelizing, and that, that principal of the high school met my dad in town. He said, where's Johnny at? He said, he's preaching the gospel. He said, you tell him. He said, you tell him that night he made the right decision. Oh. Hallelujah. Amen. What's wrong with doing right? Let's do what's right. Let's serve God with all of our heart. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody shout hallelujah. Now you may be seated. Now you may be seated. This is a youth conference. I'm not going to go much longer, but let me deal with this. I feel like dealing with it. Some of you young men may be pretty good at basketball. You know what God's saying tonight? If you've got a basketball in your hand, he's saying drop it. Drop it. God may let you play a little basketball over in the gym with the boys dressed right. He may let you play out in the backyard. But brother, you got to drop it and let him take the snake out of it. <laughs> Hallelujah. May be seated. Some of you young men may be good at throwing a football or catching it. And the devil tempts you to go play on the team. We got a word from God tonight. God talked to me about this three months ago or more. And God said, tell you, and I'm just telling you what I felt of God. God said, if you are thinking about football and you're pretty good at it, 
and the boys and the, and the coach and others are wanting you to play, I got a word from God. Drop it. What have you got in your hand? A football? Drop it. What have you got in your hand? A baseball? Drop it. What have you got in your hand? A basketball? Drop it. Hallelujah. You may say it's harmless, but you can't run with that crowd and live right. Hallelujah. You got to put Jesus Christ first in your life. You can't do that when you're on a team. You got to put the team first. You got to play when the team plays. You got to practice when the team practices. But if you're a child of God, you got to put God first in your life in everything. What have you got in your hand? You may be seated. A rod. Drop it. You know, and that's about the best way for a person to break a habit. I've had people come to me as a pastor and say, man, I'm, I'm trying to quit smoking. I'm trying to quit drinking. I'm trying. I'm trying. I got this habit. Well, I got one, two words for you. If you've got a habit, I'll tell you how to break it. Drop it. Drop it. When you drop it, it'll break. I said, when you drop it, it'll break. And it won't break until you drop it. You may be seated. So the coach may want you to play, but drop it. The boys on the team may want you to play. Drop it. You may know you're better than some of the others that's on the team. Drop it. You may know you could be better than the rest of them. Drop it. You may know you might could make a career out of it. Drop it. I don't know of anybody that's playing sports tonight that's baptized and got the Holy Ghost and living a victorious life. If you do, come and tell me after church. I don't know of one that's playing sports tonight that's living a victorious Christian life. I don't know of one. It may seem quite harmless. You may be arguing with God and say, I want to keep it in my hand. That football, that baseball, that basketball, I want to keep it in my hand. You may say it's hard to drop because that's the snake that's in it. God said, maybe, maybe I'll let you reach down and touch it again, but I can't give it back to you until you dropped it. And God said, I won't ever let you touch it till I take the snake out of it. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that God's going to say drop it and then come back and play on the team later. You'll get your priorities right and get full of the Holy Ghost. You may, you may play some in the backyard. You may play in the, in the church gym. You may play with some of the guys. You may play a little ball with them. And uh, I think that's fine. We got, we got to the gym. In fact, I didn't plan it that way. But we got two full high school-sized gyms. And, and our kids play ball. But I'm telling you, when they play, they dress right. We got folks here tonight that can vindicate and justify what I'm saying. They're from Durham. When they go to our gym, they play right. They dress right. They talk right.
Hallelujah. So drop it. God said, I may let you touch it on a casual basis again. But drop what's in your hand. Let me close with this. Be seated for a moment. Let me take it to another, another dimension. What have you got in your hand? A piano? A guitar? A bass? Some drums? A little bit heavy for your hand, but you understand what I'm talking about. Your musical gifts and talents. And some people may be sitting here tonight saying, you know, Pastor, go there. could you tell me how to best use my Christian life? I've had them come with that approach. What kind of a Christian ministry should I focus on? Or what should I focus on to get the best use of my skills on a piano or a guitar or the drums or the bass or whatever. Are you still with me? Amen. You may be asking, you want somebody to tell you, can a Christian orient your life around a piano? No. That's right. Let me tell you something. Thank God for good music directors. We've got some of you tonight. They don't come any better than this one. Thank God for people that are in music. But the people that God's blessing are in the music because they're not looking for that as a career. They dropped it and God let them pick it up again and use it right in the church. God said, drop that piano, it's got a snake in it. God said, drop that guitar, it's got a snake in it. God said, drop those drums, it's got a snake in it. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know, I had a music director one time. He's not there now. He may be seated. And he came back from a conference and said to me, Pastor, my soul was disturbed. I said, why? He said, I went out to eat with several music directors, quote, unquote. And he said, they started talking stuff that I couldn't agree with. I said, what did they say? He said, some of them were saying, we're more important to the service than the pastor. The state, he said, they were saying this sitting around eating. Eat. We ought to make more than the pastor makes. Because the, the church service don't move until we move it. Anybody still here? And if you feel that strongly about music, you better drop it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Whatever happened to singing good song like we sung tonight. Songs about the blood. Songs about Jesus. Songs about Calvary. Songs about the cross. We don't need rock music, rap music, worldly music. We need Christian music in our church. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, churches that are building their program on worldly music, you're building on the sand and not on the rock. Somebody showed me a picture on the phone just last week, just last week, of an apostolic church in a certain state between Florida and New York or Maine or somewhere, somewhere in between. Somebody showed me a picture. 
After church, they were having a rap session. And they had lights flashing. They had a smoke machine. This was an apostolic church. I'm going to tell you, there's a danger among us. There's a danger among us. I still insist in our church on singing songs that I can understand what you're saying. You may be seated. My sister-in-law, Sister Diane Godair, the wife of my brother, Kenny Godair, uh, they pastor 30 miles from me in Burlington, North Carolina. She was telling me one time, I think she overstated the point, but here's what she said. She went to this church and boy, they was raving it up. Jesus, Jesus dropped the charges. Jesus dropped the charges. And that's good. That's good. I'm like it. Jesus dropped the charges. She said they sung it. And everybody got excited. Jesus dropped the charges. And she said, second verse, Jesus dropped charges, Jesus dropped charges. Third verse, Jesus dropped charges. Jesus, fourth verse, that's the way, that's all it said. Amen. I'm going to tell you, I want to hear a song that says something. That's why every week in our church, I insist that we sing one of the old hymns of the church. Every week. I want our young people to know there's power in the blood. I want them to know amazing grace. I want them to know how great thou art. Praise God. Is anybody still here? I said, is anybody still here? Amen. If your talent is trying to take over, you better drop it. If it's trying to dictate your life, you better drop it. If it's trying to dictate your future, you better drop it. It's got a snake in it. Let's clap our hands to the Lord. So somebody, you may be seated. Here's what I felt like saying before I ever came. And I made myself a note to say it. Until you're prepared to go on in your room and get down on your knees and say, God, I've got empty hands. I'm dropping that piano. That's not going to be the main thing in my life now. If I don't ever play the piano in church, I'm still going to live for God. If they don't ever ask me to sing a special, I'm going to still live for God. If I don't play the drums, I'm going to still live for God. I'm going to be in church. Amen. So, here's what I want to say. Maybe seated. Go in your room and pray and say, God, I've got empty hands. I'm dropping that piano and the drums and the guitars. And I don't know if you'll ever give it back to me, God. And I really don't care if you give it back to me. Because my life is now focused on you. And until you're prepared to do that, you'll never know God's will for your life. Because all you'll ever see is a piano, a guitar. Some drums. That's all you'll ever see. You won't be able to see the will of God. Maybe God will let you play the piano. But you've got to drop it first and get the snake out of it. Maybe he'll give it back to you. That's not your business. I'm just saying tonight, drop it. And God is saying, I may give it back to you. But when I do, it's going to be harmless. I'm going to take the snake out of it. 
That same principle will apply to your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You may be seated real quickly. You may say, well, he's handsome. That's all right. He's nice looking. He's a good dresser. He does this and that. You better make sure that he's in church good. You better make sure he loves God. You better look past the looks. Make sure he loves God. Hallelujah. Maybe seated. Maybe, just maybe, that girlfriend may be your future wife. But it may not be God's will. That boy may be your future husband, but it may not be God's will. What I want to know, if you're willing to get in an altar and consecrate and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm going to drop this right now. I'm dropping... I'm not saying go out and tell a girl, oh boy, I don't like it. I, I'm, I'm saying there's a spiritual and common sense approach. Somebody needs to get in the altar and say, God, I'm going to drop that boy. I'm going to drop that girl. You may give them back to me, but you've got to take the snake out of it. Let's all stand. Let's all lift our hands and praise the Lord right now. Somebody worship God with me. You've got to be willing to put it all in the hands of God. Because God is saying tonight, I know what's best for you. I know what's best for your future. I know the hearts of other people. And if I tell you to drop it, like I told Moses to drop the rod, don't be afraid that I won't give it back to you. When I give it back to you, the snake will be taken out of it. And your life will be submitted to God. Whatever God says and tells you, that's what you'll do. I want you to know tonight that nothing will ever, ever be legitimately yours until you've dropped it and God gives it back to you. What do you got in your hand, Moses? Got a rod. He said, drop it. Nothing will ever be legitimately yours until you drop it. He may never give it back to you. But if he does, you take the snake out of it. That's God's business because only God knows the future. And if you hold on to what you got and refuse to drop it, if you refuse to do the will of God, then you know perfectly well you've got a snake in your hands. Just a piece of harmless wood. But you know if you're not willing to drop it, you've got a snake in your hands. I read the story of a certain man that came to this country from another country. He went to a circus and he started performing in a circus. Story goes that they had several items on the program and his was the last one. The last and most spectacular event in the circus was about to be performed by this man. The lights were dim. 
colored spotlights were focused on the arena. And before long, the story said, the magnificently clad trainer came up with all of his imitation jewels sparkling in the colored lights. He swaggered into the ring, and with his whip, there was a rustling in the grass. And out of the grass came a boa constrictor. This was all a part of the program. It was the last great act of the night for the circus. That boa constrictor crawled its way up to the trainer. And as the applause, applause and the shouting increased, it wound itself around him. Starting with his ankles, then up to his knees. crowd was cheering, hollering, whistling. Finally his waist, finally his chest came totally lost to view between the coils of that horrible reptile. In the midst of all the applause on this night, suddenly there was a blood-curdling shriek. And then there was a silence as though you had cut it with a knife. There was a snapping. There was a cracking of his bones. And his body was crushed to a pulp. He had that snake, they said. I read the story for 18 years. He caught it when it was only nine inches long. He had it when it was no thicker than the thickness of a little finger. At any time in its beginning, when it was small, he could have crushed it to death between his thumb and his finger. He could have dropped it and had an empty hand. But he kept it and he played with it. And he thought he could tame it, but it killed him. The sand that you think you can play with and tame is going to come back to crush you. So what have you got in your hand? God said, drop it. Maybe I'll give it back to you, but I'll take the snake out of it. And then you'll have the rod of God and you can do wonders. It'll be a great God-given victory because it'll be a rod in your hand. There's some young people here tonight. I know we're crowded. I know we're crowded. But perhaps you could move, if you'd like to, closer to the front. Maybe there's some young people in this building that would like to come down the aisle. You can't all get around this front, not room. But you might stand in the aisle and say, you know what, God? You're talking to my heart tonight. You're dealing with me about some of these things, maybe some other things I haven't even talked about. But you're dealing with me tonight. And I'm coming to pray. I'm coming to say, God, I'm dropping it tonight. When I pick it up again, it'll be the rod of God in my hand. Why don't we sing? Amen. 